Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. I used to visit my sister in New York City at her office building that was right next to Madison Square Park. And I remember I would come for lunch, and if we were lucky, we would go to a burger joint right in the park. And I say if we were lucky because if you know the burger joint I'm talking about, Shake Shack, you know that if you don't time it right, if you don't get there extra early or have an hour or two to wait, you might find yourself in a line that wraps literally around the block, through the park, down the street. It's a mess. At the time, I didn't know that much about Shake Shack. And then a couple years later, when I was playing squash in Dubai, I remember seeing what was the largest man-made beach I'd ever seen, maybe the only man-made beach I'd ever seen. And alongside that beach was an American burger and fries joint. And it was another Shake Shack. And here on this beach connecting uh, Dubai to the rest of the world, uh, in the distance you could see Iran and the rest of the Middle East along the horizon, was an American burger joint. And I remember thinking that is a place that exports Western culture all over the world through burgers and fries. Someday I want to talk to that guy. So that day is today on the When to Jump podcast. You're going to hear from Danny Meyer, the founder of Union Square Hospitality Group and the creator of Shake Shack. If you don't know about it, he's going to give you the story in his words. And I think you'll like this one, not just for any future restaurateur or someone who likes to, to eat food. Uh, but this is a story of American-born entrepreneurship in its finest form and someone who is, although very humble, incredibly successful in all that he touches, or should I say, all that he eats. Get it? All right, enough of me. Here's my conversation with Danny Meyer on the When to Jump podcast. Before there was Danny, the food entrepreneur, there was Danny, the college summer student tour guide in Rome. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I was working for my dad who had a tour company based in my hometown of St. Louis, and he designed group tours. So by the time my older sister was 20, she got to be a tour guide. She picked Copenhagen. When I got to be 20, I picked Rome. And when my brother got to be 20, he picked Paris. So all three of us had an opportunity to, to not only get to know a part of the world we wanted to get to know, but to learn what it was like to be responsible for taking care of people while they were on vacation. And what did that that experience of getting out of your your comfort zone, your bubble, leaving St. Louis, being outside the States, what, what did that do for you? As well, you... it was great because St. Louis was not my comfort zone. I really wanted to get away from home. I would do <laughs> I would have gone I would have gone almost anywhere to get away. I love growing up in St. Louis, but when I was 20, I was in college and uh, it was a good time to spend the summer in a place where I love the food, I love the people, I love the history, I love the art. And what I came to learn that I didn't know about myself before that was that I really loved showing people a good time. And I also found out something kind of neurotic about myself, which is that on day one, when I would pick up these tours at the airport, there would generally be about, I think if I'm not mistaken, probably 20 or 25 people in a group what they all had in common was they were tired that first morning because <laughs> it was a red eye. So no one had slept. 
And I had this uncanny desire, need, and ability to figure out who was the crankiest person from the minute they got off the airplane. And I was just dead set on whether I had them for three, five, or seven days because those were the tour lengths. I was going to – I'll be damned if the crankiest person on day one was not going to be the happiest person by the time it was over. And that, um, interestingly, I think has a lot to do with what I like doing in restaurants. How successful were you with your crankiness index? Were you able to convert most to the other side? I was incredibly able to convert them. And part of what I did was I would go off itinerary in favor of taking people to my favorite trattorias. And I had a double reason for wanting to do that. Number one is I was getting a culinary education for free. But number two, I was actually getting a thousand lira per <laughs> head that I brought into these to these trattorias. So I would leave getting paid twenty five thousand lira for having a free lunch. And it was, you know, <laughs> that's a pretty good game. But one of them ended up becoming important in my life because years later when I said to myself, why don't you think about getting into the restaurant business yourself, I actually went to go cook at that restaurant and they let me in the kitchen. The guy who had been the tour guide bringing them diners years before was now somebody who was an apprentice in their kitchen. Wow, that is full circle. Yeah. Was there anything that you said, this is something I got to hold on to in whatever I do next? No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't focused on my career. I was focused on the moment. And I don't think that's completely unusual for someone in their early 20s. I knew I liked it. I knew it was fun to to be in Italy. Um, I did take uh, a couple jobs soon thereafter, especially after graduating from college, one in politics, uh, one in radio uh, and TV. And, uh, you know, at this point, I was like, all right, you better figure out what you want to do with your life. And at that point, with a political science degree, I wasn't at all thinking about going into the restaurant business because nobody <laughs> at that time in the 19, early 1980s really was thinking about parlaying a liberal arts degree into going into the restaurant business. But I was wondering, should I go get a law degree? Should I get because, – because of my interest in politics um, – not because I wanted to be a lawyer, by the way, or should I maybe go get a master's in journalism because I really like news and I like thinking about how I can bring public affairs to people. But I, I think what happened when push came to shove, I ended up saying to myself, maybe you should do the, the politics thing and therefore you really need to be a lawyer first, even though we had a brand new president at the time, Ronald Reagan, who I think was one of the first presidents, at least in my recollection, who had not been a lawyer at some point. I'm sure I'm wrong about that, but at least that's what I thought. And uh, and it was, you know, I've told this story many times before, but it was literally on the eve of taking my LSATs that I just kind of freaked out and said, I don't want to be a lawyer. And I'm so glad I had that that night. So I did take the LSATs and never ended up applying to any law school. Partially because the scores were pretty bad, too. <laughs> Makes it an easier decision. Did you feel like you were letting someone down when you went away from law school? So it wasn't so much that I felt like I was letting anyone down. I just felt confused. And, I, you know, I, I did leave out a three-year professional period in my life where I was a salesman. 
selling electronic tags to stop shoplifters for three years um, with a very, very uh, small but growing public company um, that was based in a little town called Thoroughfare, New Jersey. That's really the name of the town. And I became the top salesman in the company pretty quickly. And that was actually my first jumping off point because that career was going so well. And at this point, I was probably 22 years old, 23 years old. And I was making $125,000 a year in commissions. Not, you know, my salary was $16,000. But, uh, you know, with no dependents whatsoever and a cheap walk-up apartment. And I loved the feeling of being a, a salesperson, not only to apply some of what I had learned as a tour guide, where I could empathize with who I was selling to and make them happy with our product. It wasn't food, uh, but I found out not only how to do that, but I also found that I was personally motivated in a way I never knew I would be by making commissions and then by investing in the company that I thought I could really help because New York was the biggest market for the company at that point. So it was a great experience. And uh, what happened was that after three years of doing well as a salesman, I was offered the job of of, uh, moving to London to run, to to help the company expand into Western Europe. Pretty cool thing. And I I think I was probably 23 or 24 at that point. And I went to London for a couple of weeks to try to figure it out. Loved it. But I said to myself, that's not, I don't want to take my whole life and go there right now. I didn't want to leave family, friends, um, my life, which I was enjoying in New York City. And that was the moment when I said, okay, either either figure out what you're going to do with your career or not, but you, you just got to get serious right now. And that led ultimately to getting into the restaurant business. Part of what motivated me as a salesman for those three years was you have to understand if you're if you're if the product you're selling in New York City are electronic tags to stop shoplifters, you're spending a lot of your time in um, some of New York's uh, less wealthy neighborhoods where shoplifting was at you know definitely in the eighties it was a big big problem. And what I learned is that uh, I got a company car, I got a powder blue Volkswagen Rabbit, and I would kind of tool around. I learned not only all five boroughs incredibly well, but I learned Long Island well. I got to know all these neighborhoods, and I found that I would I would actually go prospecting for potential business wherever there was a restaurant I wanted to go to. So I was actually using my, my day. I was responsible for booking my, my whole day, deciding who I was going to go cold call. We didn't have the internet back then. But I would sniff out where the best diner was or where the best Jewish delicatessen was or where the best Chinese food restaurant or the best soul food restaurant. And I would actually schedule my cold calls around where I wanted to to learn about food. So this whole food thing was following me if only I cared to, to, to listen. But I just I wasn't really I wasn't thinking about it as a career because I wasn't supposed to. In the early 80s, and when you were, I think it was 27 when you opened your first restaurant, like you said, there weren't many other folks to look at. What 
what is that feeling like leaving what seems like a very successful path to kind of just start into this great unknown? It it really wasn't that hard or that bad for, for two reasons. And I think that what was happening out in your neck of the woods, um, particularly San Francisco and, and also I would, I would argue in L.A. as well, were that people um, had already started to parlay liberal arts educations into going into the restaurant business. Many of them were chefs, but there were a lot of really fantastic people doing this. Jeremiah Tower, Joyce Goldstein, Mark Miller, Barbara Tropp, um, Wolfgang Puck, obviously, and I'm probably missing another 20 that I found inspirational back then. But I looked up to them because they had architecture degrees and, you know, economics degrees and philosophy degrees, and it was okay for them to go into the restaurant business. So that gave me some courage. I should say it also gave me some courage because my own father, who had been in the travel business, had opened up um, a small hotel in St. Louis called the Seven Gables with a um, with a restaurant called Chez Louis. And it became a Relayan Chateau. And I said, you know, they're going to have a tough time telling me I cannot do this if he's done it himself. <laughs> so that was also helpful to me. Yeah. What do you credit those those early years and the success that you started to find coming from? I credit the success with not believing in our success. I just feel like we just never stopped trying. And we we were pretty bad at the beginning. We were... I didn't know, you know, I I had worked in one restaurant in New York City for about eight months as an assistant lunch manager uh, with no responsibility for the profit and loss of the restaurant. I was responsible for being a lunch host and for getting the specials typed up and for, you know, checking in the staff in the morning. But I wasn't part of running the business, so I had very little experience. Then I went to go cook in Italy and France working in a, a couple places that my dad had done business with that he connected me to. But by the time I opened Union Square Cafe, I had had exactly 13 months of restaurant experience myself. I loved it. I loved the electricity. I loved the feeling of family. I loved working hard with a bunch of people to make a bunch of other people happy. But I wasn't nervous because I think, as is the case with many entrepreneurs, we don't tend to see what could go wrong very well. I think we are cockeyed optimists, and you you just tend to believe it's going to work out. I also knew that if Union Square Cafe failed, I, I knew I'd get back up on my feet. I knew that nobody would care because no one had ever heard of me, so I would have been the proverbial tree to fall down in the forest with no one to hear it. Um, this you got to keep in mind, this was way before the days of social media and Ninety-nine percent of people in New York wouldn't even know you opened the restaurant. You wouldn't know a restaurant was open until the New York Times reviewed it three months into its existence. From a reputational standpoint, I had nothing to lose whatsoever. I had no reputation. Um, From a financial standpoint, I had put in all of my savings from the stock I had invested in. But if that had all gone away, which thank goodness it didn't, I was 27 years old, and I was confident enough that I would just do something else at that point. It's not like I had a family, kids to put through school. I just didn't have any outside obligations other than to myself at that point. 
and walk us through <clears throat> what happens next and where do you go from there? Well, Union Square Cafe opened in 1985 and um, it was not very busy at the beginning. It, as a matter of fact, I remember in the early couple months, we we had a vicious cycle because the only way to get good waiters back in those days um, was to be a really busy restaurant. And we weren't. And and yet you couldn't become a busy restaurant unless you had really good waiters. So I remember a couple days where the two or three waiters who really knew what they were doing um, came to me and they said, we just can't afford to work here anymore. And I said to myself, you know, you should really subsidize their, their income, which I did. And I said, so for the next six months, I'm going to guarantee you that you guys, you three people are going to make whatever amount of money it was that they felt good about. And what I need in turn from you is to just help me keep recruiting and training more people. And I believe that that'll help us get busier. Well, lo and behold, about probably about a um, hundred days into the restaurant's existence, we got our New York Times review finally and it was a really good two-star review. And I don't think I've ever seen a car go from zero to 60 more quickly than that. We didn't know what hit us. It was so busy after that. And we just never really looked back. You know, it's funny. We had the, <clears throat> one of the co-founders of Airbnb on the, on the program a couple of weeks ago. And he said, if he was to tell one thing to the cast of Field of Dreams and the person who wrote that Kevin Costner line, if you build it, they will come, it, he would say it's not true. A lot of times you build it and they don't come, at least not at first. How did you know to just stay patient to subsidize those the, those wages and to wait it out? Did you know the Times review was coming and it would be positive or did you know it was just going to work one way or the other? I don't think I knew any of the above. I just knew <laughs> that I wasn't going to quit. And, you know, I would work an extra hour every day. I don't think I ever worked. I'm just trying to think aloud right now. I don't think I ever worked more than an 18-hour day. And I don't think I worked many 16-hour days, but I was there almost every day for 12 to 14 hours. Um, and I would just do anything possible to make sure that whoever you were, you were going to leave the restaurant feeling a little better than when you came in. Now, we failed a few times, and I, I you know, I, no amount of free dessert wine was going to turn an un, some unhappy people into happy people. We did have the we call it the medicine cabinet, which was the refrigerator stocked with 12 or 15 of the best dessert wines I'd ever tasted. And anytime we made a mistake, we'd send somebody to the medicine cabinet to try to apply some salve on, you know, the, the angry guest, angry because we had made them angry. It did finally dawn on me um, over the years that there are some people who are happy when they're unhappy. And no matter... No matter what we did, we were never going to make them happy in the way that you and I might describe happiness. But but they were actually happy being unhappy. <laughs> so I did learn an important lesson. But we would just try anything to um, – and, and it gets back to, to what you asked me earlier. I think the minute you believe in your own success is – it's a dangerous moment because you stop trying as hard and you just can't. Yeah. I remember – when I was at Bain, I woke up every day for a while saying, well, I'm a pro squash player. I'm just doing this day job right now to pass the time and entertain a few folks in the office. But at some point, I'm going to go back to my real job. And of course, I'd never played professional squash, but there's some visualization that when you sink it in, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Nope, you can't. So 
tell me because I know there's a great story behind Shake Shack and I don't want to pass through all the other great accomplishments, but can you give us a little bit of, I mean, that was like a jump within a jump. You were, you were not necessarily looking to go in that direction with all the different concepts you were working Well, there have been many, many jumps, just to, just to say it. So when you were good enough to invite me to, to your podcast, I asked myself, <laughs> well, how many jumps have I made? I mean, going into the restaurant, I wasn't really giving up any careers to get into the restaurant business. I gave up ideas of careers, but it's not like I had put in 10 years as a school teacher before deciding to become a cop or 10 years as a cop before deciding to become a security officer or whatever. What I've had to do in terms of the leaps in my career have been to to say, look, you're in the hospitality business, but hospitality doesn't limit you to a certain kind of restaurant. In fact, it doesn't even necessarily limit you to restaurants. If you believe, this is me talking to me right now, if you believe that the way your business makes people feel is how you're ultimately going to be judged, for better or for worse, that can apply to any range of businesses. And so I, I do feel like I've, I've, in a certain respect, not taken a leap in terms of the approach, but there have been many, many leaps. I think going from Union Square Cafe to Gramercy Tavern was a big leap. It was going from a a neighborhood, a really excellent neighborhood restaurant, Union Square Cafe, to a much bigger restaurant that would have a concept in the front called the Tavern and a concept in the back, the the dining room of, of Gramercy Tavern. It was taking two sides of the same coin. I think Union Square Cafe was trying to be a really excellent version of an accessible restaurant. And I think Gramercy Tavern was trying to be an accessible version of a fancy restaurant. And that was a big leap. It was equally a big leap to uh, four years later open two restaurants within four weeks of each other, 11 Madison Park and Tabla, one being another restaurant with lots of of ambition, 11 Madison Park, uh, and another being our first ever Indian restaurant. It was subsequently a big leap to open a barbecue restaurant and then a jazz club and then a museum restaurant at the Museum of Modern Art and then cafes serving 2,000 people at the Museum of Modern Art, and then came Shake Shack after that. So each one, in a certain sense, felt like a leap, but I would argue not any more than, a, you know, if I were fortunate to be a great skier, it would really be like looking at different mountains and saying, all right, let me try one that's a little bit steeper. Now let me try one that's a little bit higher. Now let me try one on a different continent. Let me try one that's icier. And I just... If you like doing whatever you do, I think um, you can take micro leaps. It feels like micro leaps because as far as I'm concerned, hospitality is hospitality. Whether we're in a ballpark or an airport or in an airplane or um, in a hotel or, I don't know, um, in, in the middle of a park like Shake Shack, it's, it's really all the same. There's so many folks in our community that want to jump into things like food or travel or health and wellness. You know, what what has surprised you the most as you look back on a career filled with many of these micro jumps, one where you didn't study food coming up and you 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 took a risk to go in it and and not, you know, not that you know everything, but what would you say stands out as something you didn't think about when you started? I don't think I thought about anything when I started. <laughs> I just jumped. I just I had this itch to share with people something that I loved. I loved going out to restaurants, and I loved the experience of 
traveling and learning about people based on what they eat and what their local customs are. So I actually wasn't surprised by anything because I was surprised by everything. I'm not being falsely humble when I say I just didn't, didn't think of anything. I do think that as I look back, when I don't listen to my gut, I tend to get in trouble. The gut is just as valid uh, as as the brain up in your head. I think that the brain in your gut is connected to how you feel about things. And because it's connected to how you feel, it's sometimes hard to put words to it and articulate it to others. But I make mistakes when I don't listen to my gut. And that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned. I was in Dubai a couple of years ago, and I stopped by a Shake Shack right on the water. And what I saw were not people enjoying food. They were enjoying food, but they were enjoying an export of American culture, of something that they that they could have through 15 bucks, $10. Do you think of the way you serve people, not just in the store and in the restaurants or in the cafe or airports, but do you think you're giving something much, much more than just food? I do. I, I think that at their best, restaurants provide a place for people to anchor it, it's part of community. You know, I, I think it's very, very clear that if you look at 24 hours in a day, and I don't, no matter how much technology there is out there, I don't think that's going to probably change how many hours there are in the day. So the question is, it's really about the numerator. What are you going to do per 24 hours in your day? How much time are you going to take care of yourself and your body? How much time are you going to be doing things? How much time are you going to be with people you love? How much time are you going to um, sleep? And I think that what restaurants can do, and I think what, what the best experiences in life do are they they give time meaning. They give you the opportunity to connect in a genuine way with yourself, with other people. That's meaningful. And I, I think there are so many experiences in life that are just not meaningful. If one more drugstore opens in my zip code, it's just not going to change my life. It's just not. It's not essential in my life. If one more dry cleaner opens, it's it's okay because the other three got the stains out of my clothes pretty well as it was. But I do think that businesses that can actually make your use of time richer and more meaningful are the ones that, that matter the most and maybe more than ever today. Restaurants um, and hospitality are only one facet of meaningful experiences. There's many, many, many of them, but anything that can either save me time or enrich the time I have, I think is a really valuable product these days. Have you been back to the original Chatterias in Italy that gave you some of this inspiration? I've been back to many of them. Sadly, the one I was describing where I took guests and and then cooked uh, clothes suddenly. And uh, I went there one day, took my whole family, and I was just so sad that it, all of a sudden there was a new sign up there was a new uh, team running it no one there would tell me what happened to the original owners and the original owners were not uh, the kind of people who would use the internet so I've never succeeded at tracking them down and it's sad but I still have all my memories oh. Danny thank you so much for joining me on the When to Jump podcast really appreciate thank the you, conversation alright I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Danny Meyer If you get stuck at one of the lines that wrap around a Shake Shack near you, hopefully that gives you a little bit of comfort that he is a very cool guy with an awesome jump story. 
That will do it on the When to Jump podcast this week. If you're in Dubai next week, come join us at the Emirates Literature Festival, the largest lit festival in the Arab world. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have the invite to get to keynote it, and I will be out there next week, March 5th through the 10th. Uh, shoot us a note, info at whentojump.com. If you live in the area, you want to come by. And if you don't live in the area, join us next week on the When to Jump podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday, and we hope to hear from you in the meantime. Thanks so much for listening. This is the When to Jump podcast. My name is Mike Lewis, and I'll see you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.